Hi guys, welcome back. I'm Brianna. I'm Oharo. And I'm Demaya. And this is She Thinks She Knows Podcast. Hi everybody. Today on our show, we have a very, very special guest. And honestly, it was just, it came into fruition, I guess. Um, we want to thank Gary, who was on our show tonight, who connected us with Dr. Umar. And I just gave the name away. So today on our um, show, we have Dr. Umar as a guest. And as many of you know him, I will give him an opportunity to introduce himself. Dr. Umar is a doctor of clinical psychology, certified school psychologist and principal, author of the book, Psychoacademic Holocaust, the Special Education and ADHD Wars Against Black Boys, as well as the new book, Black Parent Advocate, The Art of War for Dealing with America's Public and Charter Schools, which will be coming to Hartford, Connecticut, for the very first time, as I will also be coming to Hartford, Connecticut for the very first time this coming Saturday. And of course, Springfield, Massachusetts for the very first time ever this coming Sunday, June the 27th. Many thanks to Brother Gary for making that happen. So we have a New England double header. I'm also founder of the National Independent Black Parent Association, the National Movement to Save Black Boys. And I'm currently in a process of renovating a four building campus in Wilmington, Delaware, which is the Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey RBG International Leadership Academy for Black Boys, which will be America's first truly pan-Africanist institution focused upon the critical importance of teaching our young men how to become nation builders. Okay, that was a very, very good introduction and you laid out everything very clearly. So we appreciate that. You have a lot of goals and a lot of accomplishments. So what inspired you to pursue the knowledge that you have and how did this journey begin for you overall? It began for me in the third grade when I was living in Jacksonville, North Carolina. My father was in the United States Marine Corps and it was during the third grade year that I decided I wanted to spend my life as a psychologist. I knew at that age of eight, that I wanted to spend my life helping black people feel better about themselves and helping people in general feel better about themselves, uh, particularly children. So I knew that I wanted to dedicate my life to helping other children when I was still a child in the third grade. When I returned to Philadelphia, fourth and fifth grade was my introduction to black consciousness. We had a black history class at the General George G. Meade Elementary School at 18th and Oxford Street in North Philadelphia. And so fourth and fifth grade was my introduction to black consciousness. And then the sixth grade, I believe it was sixth or seventh, my father took me to my first family reunion in Baltimore, Maryland, where I learned that I was related to arguably the greatest black lead in American history, Frederick Douglass, who was first cousins with my four times great grandfather, Stephen Henry Bailey, who was actually a US colored troop in the civil war. He participated in two major battles, at least two major battles. He was at Appomattox, uh, the Battle of the Courthouse, uh, which led to the surrender of the Confederacy through Robert E. Lee. And he was also uh, present in Texas when the United States Colored Troops came into Texas in June and liberated the last of the remaining enslaved Africans, which led to a holiday known as Juneteenth. That is my four times great grandfather the first cousin of Frederick Douglass, who was actually mentioned by name by Cousin Fred in his narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass when he talks of growing up on Tuckahoe Creek with Cousin Stephen. Cousin Stephen was my four times great grandfather. And so before I left elementary school, I knew I wanted to spend my life as a psychologist. Before I left elementary school, I knew I wanted to fight for black people. And before I left elementary school, I felt I had an obligation to try to make my ancestors proud because so many of them have been great men before me. I think that um, that really is kind of inspiring um, because you knew what you wanted to do and who you wanted to do, um, I guess, life for, and that is black people. And so um, 
as many people know, um, you are part of the Pan-Africanist movement. So I was wondering if you could clarify with people, uh, for people, um, what is that movement exactly? Pan-Africanism is the black man's oldest formal political philosophy and ideology. No other ideology is older than that of Pan-Africanism. We would argue that Pan-Africanism is as old as Africa because black people have been leading Africa and traveling around the world. And yet, although they were outside of the continent, they were still maintaining close communication and conversation with brothers and sisters and others back home on the continent. So we would say that cultural Pan-Africanism and social Pan-Africanism and spiritual Pan-Africanism is as old as Africa. In the modern sense, political and economic Pan-Africanism or militaristic Pan-Africanism is a little bit more modern and was a necessary response to the thirst and the greed and the hunger of Europe to come into Africa, dehumanize our brothers and sisters and laid siege to the resources. So in a modern sense, the birth of Pan-Africanism is sometimes uh, dated to the birth of the Haitian Revolution. August the 21st of 1791. The Haitian Revolution had some very strong Pan-African overtones and undertones because those brothers and sisters in Haiti who liberated that island wanted to use it as a base from which liberation struggles all across the African world could be waged for liberation and independence. Um, the most honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey, who's the greatest black organizer ever and the greatest black leader of the 20th century, and his form of Pan-Africanism is probably the most uh, stringent. It's the strictest. The Garveyites are the highest stage of Pan-Africanist. We are the fundamentalists. But I would reduce Pan-Africanism to four principles, not that there's only four, but I think the four principles that would help people uh, really understand what is at the heart of Pan-Africanism is number one, African identity. As Pan-Africanists, we believe that we are Africans first. We are not Muslims first. We are not Christians first. We are not uh, black professionals first. We are not black fraternities first or sororities first or Masonic lodges first. We are African first. And the reason being African comes first is because God made us African. We chose Islam. We chose Christianity. You can leave Christianity whenever you're ready. You can leave Islam whenever you're ready. You can leave your fraternity and your sorority whenever you're ready. You can never leave being an African. There is nothing you can do to undo your membership in the African confraternity of humanity. And because God made us African and there's a biological, a psychological, a cultural, an intellectual, a social heritage connected to that, there is a neurological and ancestral connection between all people of African ancestry. And so for us, identifying proudly and unapologetically as African people is the foundation of Pan-Africanism. Because at the end of the day, you have to know who your enemies are. And at the end of the day, you have to know who your allies are. So if somebody who may look like me, but don't identify with me, then clearly they're not a member of my family or an ally, even if their ancestry dates back to the mother continent. Number two would be self-determination in all things. We believe that whatever is to be done for African people must be done by African people. That means if we are gonna build black families, black families must be built by black men and black women. If we're gonna build black schools, they must be built and controlled by black people. If we're gonna build a black political party, it must be owned, operated and financed by black people. And to the second point of self-determination, which extends itself into everything that we do, we wanna underline the fact that independent black institutions must be funded by black people. Too many black institutions, we would call them so-called black institutions, are funded by white folks. You cannot be a black institution when you're financing the lifeblood of your institution is coming from white folks. So independence means economic independence. It means romantic independence not dating outside of your race. Third principle of Pan-Africanism would be that we rise together or we don't rise at all. This is a very critical principle of Pan-Africanism which helps explain why Africans in the Caribbean and Africans in America and Africans in Europe and Africans in other places haven't made more progress. And that is because we haven't tied up our revolutionary struggles with the struggles in Africa. We are one people oppressed by one system 
global white supremacy, which may one day become global Chinese supremacy. But the point being made is that the control of African people is being done as a coordinated effort by all members of the European race. The exploitation of Africa's resources is, be, is a coordinated effort that is being done by all members of the European race and now increasingly the Chinese race. You understand. So if you're facing a global enemy, it only makes sense that you globalize yourself. So the only solution to global white supremacy will be global African organization or what we call pan-Africanism. And the last principle that I would make is that African independence demands repatriation from by some African people. Some of us have to go back to Africa and fight for the liberation of the mother continent on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. We can all wage the Pan-African struggle from the United States. Repatriation is critical, whether that is a permanent repatriation, a temporary repatriation, but Africans outside of the mother continent must return home and join arms with the brothers and sisters on the continent to help make Africa what she is. That not only means fighting white supremacy and imperialism, but it also means building independent black institutions in Africa so the heads of state can stop depending on Western powers for their financing. As long as Africa has to depend on Western powers for its financing, Africa will never be strong to help those of us who are scattered across the globe. And that speaks to the need for us to recognize that until Africa is free, no African anywhere in the world can be free. With that being said, um, I think that it's safe to say that today Black people are more intertwined with other races of people than any other time. So how does the movement differ than when it was first, I guess, popularized or, or when it took its new shape with Marcus Garvey? How does it differ? And what are some of the similarities with the movement? I don't think, well, for me, being a Garveyite and being a revolutionary Pan-African nationalist, nothing has changed except the strength of the enemy. Uh, the principles that we stand on have been stood on since the beginning of the Pan-African movement. If we go back to before Marcus Garvey, we go back to Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, who transitioned the year before Garvey came to America. We go back to Martin Delaney, from whom the Honorable Marcus Garvey borrowed the phrase Africa for the Africans. That was Martin Delaney, who was the first Black officer of the Civil War. He was also um, a, one of the first Black inventors, one of the first Black newspaper publishers. He was the first Black medical student at Harvard University. This is during slavery. He was the first black student at Harvard University, but he was uh, kicked out because the white students refused to go to class with him. So the principles have not changed at all. I think that uh, the commitment to Pan-Africanism did change because mm -hmm. after the deportation of the Honorable Marcus Garvey from the United States, a lot of former Garveyites and uh, those who studied the Garvey movement, they created organizations after Garvey that took our people away from the strict African foundation that Marcus Garvey gave us. Um, all due respect to those organizations, I would still argue that despite the good that they done, they ultimately did our people a disservice because they took us away from the Africanism and the Pan-Africanism and the focus on global African solidarity. And they gave us religion and they gave us a new identity that influenced black people to believe that they were not from Africa. And so Pan-Africanism took a small hit from the deportation of Garvey in the forties into the rise of Malcolm X followed by Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture in the 1960s. Uh, Stokely and Malcolm would have been the last two of the great Pan-Africanist organizers uh, that we produced here on American soil. So I don't think Pan-Africanism changed. I just think that after Garvey's deportation, there were so many opportunistic leaders who wanted to salvage some of Garvey's fame and claim, but they were not serious about African liberation. So they took our people into directions that I don't think we ultimately needed to go into. And so now there is a resurgence of Pan-Africanism due to my work and the work of other Pan-Africanists around the world. I think Pan-Africanism is at its highest height, you know, that it's been at since probably the 1960s. 
you know, but again, we have to do the work of Pan-Africanism. It's not just about the philosophy. It's not just about the slogans. It's not just about remembering the works of the great ancestors. We have to build that unity. We have to build that solidarity across the ocean. And I'm curious, with your devotion to Pan-Africanism, how do you think that interconnects with your field in psychology? And how, do you, how does that make your approach as a PhD how does that make you different? I would say that one of the reasons I'm probably as popular, as famous and infamous, and I say both because I'm as loved as I am hated and I am as hated as I am loved is because of my Pan-African platform. I'm, I'm one of the few of the notable personalities in the black conscious community. I wouldn't dare call them scholars because most of them are not but of the notable personalities in the black consciousness movement in North America, I am probably, I'm certainly the most influential. Uh, I'm definitely uh, the most requested speaker in our community. Uh, and I think Pan-Africanism has a lot to do with that because I'm able to relate to Africans throughout the diaspora. And I think they recognize that my Pan-Africanism comes from a very genuine and sincere place. So it's not just that Dr. Umar claims to be a Pan-African, it's they can feel it when I'm in South Africa. They can feel it when I'm in Jamaica. They can feel it when I'm in South America, when I'm in Europe, when I'm in Canada, when I'm in Asia, when they can feel it. And I think that that work that I've done, those seeds that I've planted over these past 21 years are beginning to bear fruit. You know, I tell people all the time, one of the blessings of my work is I could probably go anywhere in the world without a penny in my pocket and I know I'll be taken care of and I'll be probably taken care of by people who I've never met, but who have come into contact with my message. So I think being a psychologist, getting back to the question, a doctor of clinical psychology, I didn't pursue my license yet, probably won't because they may not give it to me. But also as a certified school psychologist, I think it lends itself directly to the Pan-African struggle because education is a critical component of revolutionary struggle. In fact, Thomas Sankara, one of our great Pan-Africanists from the 1980s, who was assassinated by a coon with the help of the uh, French government, he said that a soldier without a political education is a traitor waiting to happen. And mm. so education is critical, not just reading, writing, and math education, political education, social education, military education. And so understanding that education plays a critical component of any liberation struggle, the fact that I am an educator and the fact that mental health plays a critical component in any liberation struggle, the fact that I, my expertise is in the mental health of African people, I think it lends itself directly to the Pan-African liberation struggle because we need to teach our children and we need to heal the psychological hurts and hate that African people struggle from. So from that perspective, I, I still have yet to play a critical role in the mental health of African people above and beyond my seminars, my lectures, my travels. But I'm really looking forward, particularly maybe in the latter part of my life, to helping to build a, a global Pan-African mental health system, which is something that we need because our people need healing. There was no healing after colonialism. There was no healing after, Ma after the Ma'afa. There was no healing after slavery. We went straight from dehumanization to liberation, straight from dehumanization to liberation. There's no way we can claim we were not affected by the indoctrination. There's no way we can claim that we were not affected by the dehumanization. So there is a process of healing that has not yet taken place. And I really hope that before the ancestors call me home, I get an opportunity to play a role in the healing of our people. I'm already working on the school with the Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Academy. We plan to franchise that into global diasporic uh, uh, a school district so that we have schools for African children all over the world. So I'm already working on the school piece, but I'm still wanting and thirsty and waiting for the opportunity to work on the mental health piece. I've already told African people, our brothers and sisters on the continent, that if there's any country there that would uh, make would, would be willing to make use of my services, either in their ministry of education or their ministry of mental health, Dr. Umar would be willing to do that. I would love to go to Africa and serve within the ministry of education or the ministry of mental health or both. Um, so you mentioned um, a few things. So first you mentioned pursuing a license, but not act really going for it because they wouldn't give it to you. And then you sort of explained how that's because of the um, 
challenges of like being someone who's so educated like you are and that's sort of a threat and then you mentioned bringing up a, you know your school that you're starting so with your school obviously the goal is to have everything being run by you know black people african people with their teachings fully so like how would you go about the process of choosing teachers um setting it up would you be looking for volunteers you know like how would you train your staff things like that there will be a core of volunteers and the way we will hire is the same way other schools hire. You know, there will be about four or five rounds of interviews. We have over 3000 resumes that we have received from Africans all over the world. Uh, I would argue, although we don't do this work to make history, we have made history because to be honest with you, to bring about any change that African people need in this context, you're going to make history. If you're able to change anything, to benefit African people, you're gonna make history. And so the Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Academy may very well be the first school ever, ever, where the donations that purchased it and the donations that renovated it came from African people on every single continent. Perhaps the Honorable Marcus Garvey's uh, schools that he had during his day a century ago, that might be the only school prior to FDMG that was financed by the entire African diaspora. We're very proud of that. We will probably also have the most diverse Pan-African teaching corps once it's all said and done. Our teaching corps would probably rival that of any Ivy League university who prides themselves on bringing scholars together from the various cultures of the world. We will definitely do that, uh, especially given the amount of resumes that we receive. So the interview process is probably going to be a long one but I'm very much looking forward to it because I know there's gonna be so many brothers and sisters out there who we can use. And the toughest part of hiring is the fact you can't hire everybody, but we're hoping to at some point have more schools across the world so that ultimately everybody who wants to work at the school, who is equipped to work at the school will in fact be able to work at the school. And we want your listeners to know that if all goes well and if we receive the approval from the city of Wilmington, Delaware, we will be having our very first unapologetically African Family First Festival on the grounds of the Academy on the occasion of Ethiopian New Year, which is Saturday, September the 11th of 2021 from 11 until eight. We want the whole African world to come out, but only supporters and donors, people who don't support FDMG, who don't support Dr. Umar, who don't support Pan-Africanism, we would respectfully ask that they stay home. That literally sounds, we gotta make it down there. We'll be watching to see if it gets approved because we will bring everyone from Springfield and yes. we will make it down here. Um, I um, watched your Breakfast Club interview where you talked about um, you know, the lack of support from other black people um, in helping get the school um, finished being built and funded. So, I mean, I, I just want to know if you have any uh, idea why other prominent Black people um, may be hesitant or are they hesitant to support the cause or um, where do you think other Black people that have the funds to support such a great endeavor, where are they right now? The late great co-founder of the original Black Panther Party, Huey P. Newton, said, that black people suffer from inertia. We don't do anything until oppression forces us to react. So I am not surprised that not a single celebrity has donated to the school, although I know many celebrities. Uh, I am supported in spirit, quote unquote, by many celebrities, but I'm not surprised that none of them have donated. And I would chalk it up to indifference. Some of them just don't care. I would chalk it up to fear. Many of them are afraid of what could happen to their careers if the white power structure finds out that they assisted Dr. Umar in building this school. And third, I would even venture to say that there might be a little bit of envy. Not envy for fame, not envy for money, not envy because they couldn't build a school themselves because they have far more capital than I do. 
but envy because Dr. Umar is able to say things that none of us ever could. Dr. Umar has a free tongue. And here we are as multimillionaires and billionaires, and we're afraid to act, and we're afraid to think, and we're afraid to say, and we're afraid to do. So I would even argue that there might be some mild envy from the celebrity class who envy the fact that this scholar, traditionally trained scholar, is so unapologetic in his approach. And it probably makes some of them rethink how they've dedicated their life to turning their backs on their people to get paid by white folks. And I think when they see me, when they hear me, I might cause many of them to think about the life path they've chosen. Not that they would not have become entertainers, but they may not have uh, compromised their political integrity and their voice the way that they have just to get rich. Because when we all die, that money's not coming. The degrees aren't coming. Nothing you've achieved, nothing you earn is going into that grave with you. You're going by yourself. And when you're laid in that box and your name is put on that tombstone, there'll be two dates, the date you were born, the date you die, and there'll be a little dash between the two. And that dash between the two dates will represent what you've done in your life to make the world better for other African people. And a lot of our celebrities, unfortunately, will not receive a quality reception from our ancestors in heaven. I honestly couldn't agree more when you talk about why this network of celebrities that you know wouldn't support you. Um, I'm curious about your experience in the world of academia how did you navigate being a Pan-Africanist and having these deep goals in that world? I kept it to myself as much as I could when I was behind enemy lines. You know, being in undergrad and being in grad school, you're behind enemy lines. Working on my doctorate, you're behind enemy lines. They wanted to throw me out of at least two of the institutions I attended. There was even talk of my undergraduate institution trying to throw me out there as well. You know, wow. but I was able to bridle what I really stood for as much as I could until I earned my education. And that is how I got through it. By the time they found out who I really was, it was too late. And so by the grace of God, that's how I finished. Um, on that topic, uh, all of us are, I guess you could say, products of a white school system, um, predominantly white uh, college institution. And so being a Black person, um, you know, like you said, you have to keep certain things to yourself. So I think that college is the biggest setting in which I've seen Blacks um, or even the professional work field. But Blacks want to identify as closely to Caucasian as possible in whatever way that means, whether that's just the way you behave. And so what, what are your thoughts on Black people not being authentically Black, but trying to identify with anything um, white instead? Absolutely. Uh, that's one of the reasons I started the, the Unapologetically African movement back in 2010, because I had grown sick and tired of seeing Black people compromise themselves and belittle themselves out of inferiority or fear of the oppressor. And that, that was the whole purpose for the Unapologetically African movement, which also became the Unapologetically Black movement for those who don't feel comfortable calling themselves African. Here's the great contradiction of the Blacks' struggle, domestically and globally. The contradiction is integration. What do we want? Do you want to be free or do you want to be accepted? And I would argue to you, and I would bet my bottom dollar, that most Black people globally or domestically don't want freedom. They want acceptance by white people. They are willing to excuse me, they are willing to accept second-class citizenship. They are willing to accept mistreatment. They are willing to have their children miseducated. They are willing to have their men mass incarcerated. They are willing to pay the price of second-class citizenship to be accepted by white people. And that's why there has to be an intellectual civil war in the black community so we can sort people out. Because we have this bad tendency of putting anybody who wants change in the same box. But what type of change do you want? Many of us just want, uh, we just want to be accepted by white people, you understand. We just want to get a white wife and live in a white suburb and we want white people to accept us. 
I'm not fighting for that. You understand? That's not my purpose in life. I'm fighting for the right to control my own destiny. I'm not fighting for the right to participate in someone else's. And Black people need to understand that you will only be allowed to participate in white society to the extent that you will accept second-class citizenship. Equality is a curse in white culture. Equality is a contradiction of white supremacy. How can I be about white supremacy and allow black people the same opportunities? How can I be about white supremacy and allow black people the same opportunity for economic empowerment? White supremacy demands black oppression, you understand? And so that's why for me, it's all about independence. It's not about integration. And when I meet people, I'm trying to find out where they stand on that dichotomy. Are you for independence or are you for integration? If you're for integration, I wish you well, but I'm not interested in integrating with my enemy. I'm interested in creating my own reality. And then people say, well, how can you do that? This is America. Well, Chinese don't have a problem doing it. They're here. Mexicans don't have a problem doing it. They're here. European Jews don't have a problem doing it. They're here. You have independent communities from other cultures all across America. But whenever you talk about Black people building an independent community, they want to trivialize that conversation. How do we do that? That's not possible. But you ain't trivially trivialized Chinatown. You ain't trivialized, trivialized little Mexico. If other people can do it, we can do it. But the problem with independence is responsibility. Black people are too lazy to work for collective liberation. I didn't say they're too lazy to build their own business. They'll do that but that's for them and their family. I'm talking about building for the community. We are lazy and disinterested when it comes to looking out for the collective. I always make the joke, if you wanna get black people out of your house because they overstood their stay, just bring up a conversation on how we can fight to improve the black community and everybody will leave. Uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because me and um, Demaya, we recently were having a conversation about this at uh, an event where it casually came up, we we're talking about college, but somehow it morphed into a conversation of like what people's intentions are with their careers and with their success. And one thing I noticed was that it was really hard for people to just say, I'm doing this for black people, or I'm doing, you know, I'm doing this for my community. You know, a lot of people say like, oh, I'm doing it for my family. And it's like, well, your community is your family. And then there's, you know, like they'll bring up, but it's not just black. I can't say it's just black because it's this, it's that. It's, and I'm, you know, and it was kind of like mind boggling because when I brought up the point that there's communities who are able to do this, you know, like you were saying, European Jews, they're able to have their, their whole community set up where they can easily just deal with their own people. You have the Chinese people who are able to do it. You have, you know, like you have all of these groups of people able to put their resources together. And then you have a conversation with someone like yourself and you sound radical for saying something like this. Um, so I just wanted to point out that it's actually crazy that these conversations happen because when you, you know, when you think about it, just black and white, it just makes sense. You have a, oppressed people, how do you help, help each other? Like, you know, you would think it would be that simple, but it's not. Absolutely. Simple. Black people are so insecure and inferior about their blackness and their Africanity that they, some of us wish we could snap our fingers and become white. Uh, some of us wish we could snap our fingers and become Chinese or Latino. We have very little pride in race. And one of the most effective tactics of the enemy used against African people was taking away our culture and replacing it with religion. That was a very effective strategy of division because by taking away culture which brings about organization and solidarity they gave us religion and they gave us the religion in a manner in which they forced it upon us and so we practice our religions the same way that the religions were brought to us and that is through imposition it, Islam was imposed on black people. Christianity was imposed on black people. And so we try to impose it on one another. Nothing's wrong with Islam. Nothing's wrong with Christianity. I was raised in both religions and I respect them both, but I've always taken issue with the manner in which those religions introduce themselves to other people by telling them that if you're not a Muslim, you won't go to heaven. 
You see, if you're not a Christian, you won't go to heaven or that only our Muslims are more important to Muslims than black people and Christians are more important to uh, Christians than black people and saying things like a Christian is more of your brother than your own blood flesh. And that's a problem because then you're saying if a white man is a Christian, he is more your brother than a black man who has been through hell and back with you fighting white racism. So it is not the belief system of Christianity and Islam that has handicapped black America, but it is the political agenda of Christianity and Islam that have, uh, that have handicapped black America and remain to this day, one of the biggest reasons why we cannot unite because we are taught in the mosque and in the church that uniting with people who don't worship as you do is a sin against God. And that has served as a very effective tool of division in black America. Religion is the most, religion has been the greatest supporter of black oppression in America. Wow. I wanna get back to religion and other institutions or other systems that have been oppressing Black America. But first, could you elaborate on the insecurities prevalent in the Black community and how do you think we can start to heal from them? Well, self-hate was indoctrinated into African people through slavery and colonialism. 400 years of being, telling, of being told that you're nothing. That doesn't go away. Repetition controls the unconscious. Whatever you constantly tell the unconscious mind, it will come to believe it. So the only way you're going to heal that is you have to teach the children and train future generations in Black excellence. You have to teach them about the greatness and grandeur of the African mind. If you don't do that, you'll never undo the mental side. And the pro one of the reasons why we haven't been able to undo self-hate in Black America and throughout the African world is because most of our children still taught by white folks are on a white curriculum. So how are you going to free Black children from the shackles of psychological slavery when you still send your children to the very same people who enslaved you to get an education? It is impossible. One of the greatest contradictions of Black pride and Black power is the fact that most Black children in the world, globally, most African children are either taught by white people or taught by way of a white curriculum. That is absolutely insane, it is preposterous, it is disrespectful, and it is a contradiction of the liberation struggle, which is why building a school for me is so critically important. I think that um, that's a good time to ask a question. So again, I heard you say a quote that went something like, um, as long as you have a skill, you can feed your family. But if all you've got is a college degree, you might end up in an unemployment line. And so in terms of uh, um, education and just from, from elementary all the way up through high school and even college, I think black people, um, they depend on education from white people to be their saving grace. And so I was wondering if you could let us know how black people um, could start taking pride in trades just as much as they do a college degree. We made a mistake in the post-civil rights era and that mistake was sending everybody to college. I understood why we did it because for so long we were only allowed to be menial laborers. So the minute we had an opportunity to go to college, most of us didn't want our children to ever work with their hands ever again. They wanted them to exclusively use their mind. And of course you have to use your mind in the trades as well. But that was a big mistake we made and that's okay. We have to learn from it and correct it. Problem is we haven't learned from it and we haven't corrected it yet. We are still sending our children automatically to college. Children who barely finish high school are going to college. And the only thing that's happening is we're being put in long-term student loan debt. It is a conspiracy between the government, the university and the bank. I repeat, it is a conspiracy between the government, the university, and the bank to put all black people into economic slavery through learned debt. Trade school is two years, two years, maybe three. Licensed plumber, licensed carpenter, licensed welder, auto mechanic, auto body, HVAC technician, 
I'm renovating a school right now. I can tell you how expensive it is. These tradesmen are making more money than engineers, attorneys, and surgeons. One of the biggest lies ever told that people who go to work with blue collars make less money than people with white collars. Oh, not at all. They're making very good money. And what the black community needs to do, we need to open up our own trade and training skill programs. They can still go to college. It's not either or. I want to be very clear about this. You can still go to college, but you're going to go to college after you've earned a skill that can pay your bills. So if you don't finish college, you can still feed your family. Trade school should happen before college. I think that when you mention a trade and talking about uh, Black liberation and Black people building their own communities, it's only right that we begin to um, take pride in trades and because that's the only way we'll be able to build a community is that everyone specializes in a certain thing. So I agree 100%. And we have to learn how to take community inventory. One of the things I'm going to do with the Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Academy, which is why I can't wait. I hope God blesses us. I'm sure the Lord will to finish and complete this school. But one of the things that I'm so very much looking forward to is functioning at FDMG like a nation. And one of the things we have to do is we have to take inventory. There is no black census. And believe it or not, the Honorable Marcus Garvey was planning a black census before his death. He wanted to take a global inventory, a global inventory of all the skills and assets and talents that black people have. So we know how many experts we have in every area, in every field. We need to do that. And until we do that, we are not serious about revolution because you got to be organized. Black people are the most disorganized race in the world. And that's why you are at the bottom. Everybody, Chinese are more organized than us. The white man is more organized than us. Even the Honorable Marcus Garvey said, we are in the condition we in, not so much because of our color, but because of our lack of organization. And unfortunately, in a conscious community, too often we believe that information is all you need. All you need is to know that, that if, if somebody's coming to murder your community, the fact you know they're coming means nothing unless you're going to organize to resist it. Organization is the weapon and it is also the reward. I don't, I don't really know what you could follow up behind that with. I mean, I have another question. <laughs> so you were just speaking about organization. And as we know, there's so many different parts of a revolution. Um, I know you mentioned the civil war earlier. Um, so today, especially in our age group, men are not behaving like men and women are not behaving like women. So what do you think, like what tips do you have for that? Or why do you think this is an issue? Are you speaking particularly of the sexual confusion? Or no? I mean, I'm not... I mean whatever you want to give us. There's so many reasons. Well, America is in the midst of a genocide campaign against African people. The sexual confusion is in the service of that genocide campaign. This whole LGBTQ movement is nothing but a weapon of genocide, reducing the, everybody knows that a gay black man has a 50% chance of contracting AIDS. And although AIDS victims are living longer, they're still dying younger than everybody else. So homosexuality for the average black man is a death sentence. And that's a conversation that black America is not having. Atlanta, Georgia has an AIDS epidemic amongst its gay black males that rivals the AIDS rate in many second and third world nations. We're not looking at the medical ramifications of that lifestyle. We're not looking at it, particularly for black males. You see, because you only need one black male to impregnate dozens of black women. That's how slavery operated. When America outlawed the importation of Africans in 1808, it went to a slave breeding farm system. They would breed us 
They only needed one buck and it was his job to impregnate all of the women. This is what America did. You understand? So killing black men is critical towards killing the black family. It's critical to, you can get a black woman, but if you can get rid of that man, she has nobody to impregnate her, you see? And so that's why killing a black man who is the defense of the community has always been a priority of this government. And killing his identity as a man can be more effective than killing his body. Because by killing his identity as a man, you now can use him as an influencer amongst other young black men to do the same thing. Mm. Homosexuality is a brilliant, it is a brilliant population control strategy because unlike abortion, unlike genocide, unlike homicide, unlike suicide, you prevent life from being created. See with mm. abortion, you take a life, but conception has already happened. She might choose not to get rid of it. You can shoot somebody, but they're not guaranteed to die. But if you can convince little black girls not to reproduce with little black boys, if you can produce little black girls not to produce with little black boys, that's a recipe for genocide. And once the death rate exceeds the birth rate, once the death rate exceeds the birth rate, you can mathematically predict the extinction of any people. That's what they're working on right now. Thank God for the brothers and sisters who still having babies, because had it not been for them, who knows where we would be. Although there's 50 million Africans in America, which is a lot more than 4 million at the end of slavery, our percentage of America has steadily declined. During slavery, we were 50% of South Carolina. We were 50% of Mississippi. We were a big portion of the population. Ever since then, they've been reducing our numbers with our participation. That that puts things in perspective in a different way, which I think was very helpful. So I have a question, um, short question following that. So you mentioned like sort of the taking the man out of the picture, which is on one of the strategies that a lot of people speak about when they talk about the issues between uh, the black community and black men and black women in general and, and the union between the two. So could you just give a brief sort of your understanding of what the roles are from a man and from a female? Well, I believe that for every home, it is for that man and that woman to decide how they wanna operate. I don't think the woman is limited to stereotypical female responsibilities. Just like I don't think a man is limited to stereotypical masculine responsibilities, but there's some things that absolutely have to be done by the women, such as carrying the child, uh, uh, feeding the child, you understand. And there's some things that absolutely have to be done by the man, such as defending your family, you understand. So some roles can't be reversed, but outside of those roles that can't be reversed, I think it's up to that man and that woman. Maybe the man wants to be the cook. Maybe the woman wants to, you know, handle the finances, you know, so I think there's room for that. I think uh, what is most important is that we can coordinate and collaborate as men and women towards building successful Black families. The reason why the Black family is in such dysfunction is because Black consciousness is in such dysfunction. And it is amazing that Black people are separating the Black family from the dysfunctionality of the Black community. The Black community is the superstructure. It is the superstructure. The superstructure is dysfunctional. So if the superstructure of the Black community is dysfunctional, why are we expecting the family, which is the microcosm to be, if the macrocosm is crazy, why are we expecting the microcosm to not be crazy? We have to address the community as a whole, which if you notice is never done. How many times have you been to a meeting to deal with community organization? Not electing white people to public office, not begging white people for grants, not simply talking about violence in the neighborhood, but addressing the entire community systemically, layer by layer the education, the employment, 
the families, the politics. I've never been to a meeting like that in my life. And the reason why we don't have those meetings in the black community is most black people are not trying to build the black community. They're trying to escape the black community, which is why when people blame the rappers and the actors for being the role models, I say time out. Don't blame the rappers and the actors for being role models for black boys. Blame black professional men, most of whom have ran away from the ghetto for a life with a white wife, in many cases, in a white suburb. And even the black men who come back to the community are only coming back because white people are coming back. And so they wanna be part of the gentrification system. Black professional men and black professional women have abandoned our boys and girls. We don't talk about that enough. With that being said, we are sort of reaching our ending time and this conversation has been brought to a lot of different places. So I appreciate your ability to you know, state all of your points and give us all of this information in such a condensed period of time. So to end off, is there anything that you want to say to the young community, the young Black community, people who are sort of getting into figuring themselves out and deciding what it is they want to do for this world? What would you say to them? Three things. The first one, spend as much time as you need to deciding how you're going to make your contribution to the Black community, i.e. the global African liberation struggle. Spend as much time as you need deciding, but once you decide, give your whole heart and soul to it. My biggest observation amongst the young people, and by young, I mean those under 25, I don't see them dedicating themselves to black excellence the way our ancestors did. I'm seeing a lot of them settle for mediocrity. And we come from a legacy, not just in America, but going back to Africa of achieving despite the odds. And so one of the things that I want to tell our young people that they need to do is to dedicate, rededicate themselves every morning of their lives to Black excellence. And the last thing that I would tell them is be proud of who you are. Stop trying to blend it with other people. Stop trying to be accepted by other people. God made you Black on purpose and he made you African for a reason. And it is not African people that are unworthy of you. It is you who is unworthy of being an African. If you do not use your God-given African intelligence to help your people get from point A to point B, it's Pan-Africanism or perish, it is Garveyism or get back, it is unify or die. We rise all together mm. as one family or we don't rise at all. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Umar, for being no our very special guest. Um, and thank you guys for listening. We encourage you to follow Dr. Umar Johnson on his endeavors, follow what he's talking about with starting his school. Um, tune into this episode, obviously. Share it with your friends. Tune into the rest of our season, and we will see you guys next time. And also, just to remind everybody about Springfield, Massachusetts. This Sunday, Dr. Umar will be there for the very first time from 3 p.m. until 7 p.m. at 108 Corn Street. Come out, be in the building. Sunday, June 27, 3 to 7, Springfield, Massachusetts. Dr. Umar's first time in town. Free lecture and book signing. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, ladies. guys.